Thank you, Eric and worship team. You already sat down, I didn't even have to tell you. Good job. Good morning, good morning. So good to see you all this morning and to worship with you. Um, my name's Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here at City Church and um, just so grateful to, to be able to run to the Father together and to uh, receive that grace that we have received from him. And I want to uh, echo um, Pat's welcome and introduction and wish all of you fathers happy Father's Day. I'm so grateful for uh, every single one of you dads that um, just exemplify and, and demonstrate the love of our Heavenly Father. And of course, yes, so grateful for to be called his children. Um, I know sometimes uh, these holidays and these celebration days are also bittersweet for some. Um, our brother Eric, who led us to celebrate his first Father Day without his dad, I just want to honor you and thank you. And I know there's others that are missing a dad this morning. Maybe you had, you have a complicated relationship with your dad. Um, you've heard me sometimes talk a lot about my mom. You don't hear me talk as often about my dad because I have a complicated relationship with my dad. And so I just want to give you one encouragement. Um, guys, if that's you today, um, forgive. I learned that a long time ago. It took me a while, but I forgave my dad. Forgave him for a lot of the mistakes, um, a lot of the absences. Um, and my soul was refreshed by offering that forgiveness. Um, it didn't, didn't excuse, didn't, didn't diminish, and there's still things that are there that are real, real pains. But I just want to encourage you as a friend, don't carry that along. Don't carry that burden. You've carried it for too long, perhaps. So perhaps today, maybe today, let today be a day where you forgive um, the sins of your father. Um, and then let me also give you this encouragement. Find community. Um, where I did not have an earthly father um, that led, that cared for me, that did some of the things that I've tried to do um, as a dad, what has allowed me to do that, what has encouraged me in that, what has spurred me on in that, is many of the brothers in this room. Um, having friends, having the church, and the body of Christ is a gift to us. Um, we need one another, and I've learned so much from many of you about what it means to be a dad. And so as I think about that on this Father's Day, I just want to encourage you, forgive and find community. Um, and if you have an earthly father um, who has pointed you to Jesus, give him honor and praise and because he's worthy of that and give thanks to God for that gift in your life. Um, don't miss an opportunity uh, to do that. I want to just spend a moment in time uh, here before we dive into our text um, to just pray again and give thanks specifically for dads and pray for those of you that are grieving, um, pray for the hurting in our community. And so would you just bow with me now as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time together and we do thank you for the opportunity to um, acknowledge, as our brother Eric said, the good gifts that you've given us, um, so many of us with fathers who pointed us to you, discipled us, raised us up to know who you are. I know there are many sons and daughters in this room who are sons and daughters of yours because their dad taught them well, and so we just honor them. We also want to lift up our brothers and sisters who um, are grieving today, um, missing their dad, maybe have a challenge, a broken relationship with their dad. Um, Holy Spirit, would you minister 
Um, Would you comfort? Would you bring peace? Would you bring even restoration um, where there has been hurt? Um, You have the power to do that, and I thank you for that. I thank you for your grace um, in my life that I've experienced. I pray that that grace would um, just be felt by every person in this room, would be known in the depths of our souls. Lord, as we lift one another up, we're thankful that we have a heavenly father that we can call out to, that we can confidently come before and know that you hear our prayers. We thank you and um, we just give you all the glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in a study in the book of Acts. If you're a guest with us, um, we work our way through books of the Bible um, is how we sort of move through uh, life in this church. And so we're studying the book of Acts. We'll be studying the book of Acts for some time. We have been in that for a few months now. And we're turning to a new chapter this morning, Acts chapter 6. But as we finished chapter 5 last week, we saw the importance of testifying to the work of Jesus. This is what Peter and the apostles were doing. They were testifying to the work of Christ, telling the story of Jesus in their own life and testifying to him. And because of that, they were thrown in prison and the uh, religious leaders of the day tried to say, hey, we don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. And they said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We have to obey God and we're going to obey God. And that's the only person that we are going to obey. We can't obey men. And so they obey God and they continue to preach and testify to the work of Christ. And it says that at the very end in verse 42 of, of chapter five, where we ended last week, it says, and every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, testifying that the Messiah, the one who came to redeem was Jesus. And the church is experiencing this explosive growth. We talked about that a little bit as we began, sort of the middle chapter or the middle verses of chapter five talk about this explosive growth that the church is experiencing. It's growing so much that they don't even try to put a number on it. It's just this great multitude of people are coming and coming and coming. And it's a great reminder that when we preach Jesus, the church will grow. When we proclaim the good work of Jesus, the church will grow. That's not a matter of our doing the right thing. It's not a matter of us having the right skills or having the right programs or any of those sorts of things. It's when we preach Jesus. This is much of what we believe. When we set out to plant this church almost 10 years ago, one of the foundational things that we talked about, we prayed about as a group that was deeply rooted in my heart is that we must have a church, we must plant this church, and it must be rooted in the word of God. We must elevate the authority of scripture over all things. The scripture will be our guide, and we're going to preach Jesus through the scripture. Jesus has found this whole book from Genesis to Revelation. You've heard me say this a lot. It's all about Jesus, and we're going to preach Jesus. And as we do that, if we just preach Jesus, we might have to set up in a gym that's kind of old and has some real dank floors. We might have to put children and babies behind curtains because we don't even have rooms to really house them in anything that's really functional. We're going to have to volunteer. We're going to have to set up and tear down. We're going to have to do all sorts of crazy things. But if we preach Jesus in spite of all of the worldly things that kind of we don't have or we don't have this, we have a, our youth group is way too small. That was a joke. But, it, you know, whatever it is, they would, would, they'd say wouldn't work. You can't plant a church. You're not going to see God move if you don't have this or you don't have this or you don't have this. We don't need any of that. All we need is Jesus and we need to preach his word. And we've seen that. We see it here testified to in Acts chapter five and in the Lord's kindness, as we have been faithful and done all that we can do to preach Jesus, we've seen him do that. We preach Jesus. We teach Jesus. We testify to the work of Jesus. We believe that Jesus saved. We abide in Jesus. We trust that he will bring the fruit His word, John 15, if we just abide because we take him at his word, 
We believe that he will build his church. We don't have to. And he will do that according to his perfect plan. And if you look around you, if you had to navigate our amazing parking lot this morning, you know that he is building his church in our midst. If we preach Jesus, the church grows. And so that is what they did, and that is what we have strived to do. And of course, as I said, the church is exploding. And because of this explosive growth of the church, now there began to require some structure. A little bit of order had to come into place because the church is sprawling and growing so much. And so we see the beginning of this structure coming in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, Luke begins to tell us, and we enter sort of this new phase in the life of our church. If you're able, would you stand as I read from Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and says, is it, not, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom, we'll appoint, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you even as we look at a text that might seem like it doesn't have much for us. We trust and believe that you have plenty of instruction, plenty of encouragement, plenty for us to just meditate on and believe today. And so pray by the power of your spirit, we might do that. Thank you that you are building your church. What you started here in the book of Acts, we get to be recipients of, and we get to continue and be a part of continuing your great mission to see this world redeemed and made new. So thank you for inviting us in. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So it says now in these days, we don't know exactly what Luke means by now in these days, but what we do know is that there is going to be this, this, this group that is chosen to serve, and this is sometime after Pentecost. That somewhat believe this is probably about five years after the Holy Spirit first came. We are progressing along in the story of the church. And chapter six is a bit of a new phase for us as we see in the early first five chapters, all of the work is happening in and around Jerusalem. And the Jews are those who are being converted. The apostles are preaching in the temple. They're continuing to sort of protect participate in the regular routines of the temple, even what we're going to deal with here in this giving out and caring for the widows and orphans. That was something that the Jewish tradition had taught them and the church, the Christians now are just continuing that where they had a daily distribution to care for widows and orphans. They also had this giving that was sort of done on a weekly basis that would provide some monetary gifts for the uh, widows so they could buy the things that they needed to care for their household. But we see this now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. And so again, this increase is happening. You know, increase, as I read this, one of the things that I was reflecting on this, mor- uh, th- this week, not just this morning, <laughs> but this week, is when, when, as the church is increasing, when they're increased, increase is not a promise. It says, 
Luke is very clear. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing. Doesn't it say that the disciples and the growing of the church will always happen? We won't always see this happen. But in those days, there was an increase. These were days of harvest. There's days of sowing and there are days of harvest. And we have to do both of those things. In this time in history, in this moment in time, in this local place, there was a great harvest that was happening. But we also know that there are days where there is sowing that happens. And sometimes that sowing happens and it doesn't seem to yield much fruit. Parents, we know we have been training and teaching our children and pointing them to, to, to all the good things of Jesus and pointing them to his word. And sometimes they're not responsive to that. We sow and we sow and we sow. This is why Paul encouraged the church to not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in your proclamation of all and testifying to the work of Christ because you don't know when the day of increase, when the day of harvest will come. But in this moment in time, there was this great increase that was happening, all right? And the the witness of the church is exploding. You remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1? He said in verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The first five books, as I said, Most of all of this work is confined to Jerusalem and the Jewish, specifically the Jewish community. But as we encounter this new group, we're going to talk about the Hellenists here that you heard read in just a few moments. But we encounter this new group which which tells us that the work is now continuing out. By the way, did they do anything programmatically to ensure that they got to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? No. It was the work of God. The work of God brought these Greek-speaking Jews to Jerusalem, Hellenists as they're described, and now that is what is going to begin this work of the gospel going out according to God's sovereign plan. One of the things that I try to remind us of, I keep my own heart anchored to this, I want to encourage you, friends, we can trust that God will do what he intends to do. We don't have to be anxious about what he's doing. We don't have to worry, is is he going to build his church? Is is it going to work? How is it going to happen? We can trust that God will do with his church what he intends to do. And in this moment in time, in this point of history, he is now going to allow, he's going to take his gospel, he's going to expand from beyond just the Jewish community meeting within the temple to this new group of people. And in chapter 6 through 8, we see this beginning of the expansion. And a little bit later, when we pick up in chapters 9 and following, we're going to see Paul come on the scene, and then we're going to see to the ends of the earth, that this is this continual work fulfilling what Jesus said he would do. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. We're going to start here in Jerusalem and here in chapter 6, 7, 8, a little bit following, we're going to look at how that begins to expand this new season of ministry that has taken place. Growth is happening. And this first step of this growth, again, is this group known as the Hellenists. The Hellenists aren't referenced a ton in our New Testament. They're actually only mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. But in each case, it is referencing this group of people that were Greek-speaking Jews, So as the Jews were dispersed, and we know the whole history, they were sent out all over the world. It's called the diaspora. They're they're removed from Jerusalem, right? And they're taken into exile, and they are spread out over this whole region. Well, many would return back. And so we have these Greek-speaking Jews who have come to Jerusalem, and most often, probably more than likely, a great number, it says there's a great number of them, they came back, in essence, to retire. They want to go to Jerusalem to reside in the holy city for the end of their lives. 
Well, you can imagine what happens as you have all of these elderly, older, Greek-speaking Jews come back home or come to the holy city to spend their last days in Jerusalem. As husbands pass away, they die. They're left a great number of these widows. And that's where this Hellenist group comes from, these Greek-speaking Jews. And there's a great number of them who need to be cared for. And because of their speech, because they speak Greek primarily, not Aramaic, which is what the Hebrew groups spoke, there's a little bit of a division there. It's not contentious necessarily, but there is a division where they sort of spend time. We can see that in various cultures, even today. There's cultural gathering that takes place around language, around food, around, uh, you know, just types of, you know, family origin type stuff. We see all that take place, and that is what was happening in this time in history. And so the Hellenists, it says... They raise a complaint. They raise an issue because somehow they're being overlooked. Again, there's this large group of them living in Jerusalem. As we get to verse 9, it says they even worship. We'll get to that next week, actually. But uh, in verse 9, it talks about them even having their own synagogue. And so they had a separate group of these people who gathered together. Christians, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who have now been converted to Christ. And they're a part of this new growth of the church going out beyond just the Jews in Jerusalem. And so what do they experience? They experience growing pains. Again, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint came by the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The church, as it's growing, experienced growing pains. And this is the the significant growth and the expansive growth presented some real challenges. We joke a lot here in our church. We've experienced that as as this church has grown, and it's grown somewhat rapidly over the last nine years, especially in the last few years since we moved to this property. Um, And some of these growth, some of these growing pains, in this instance, they were really administrative. Again, there was this regular distribution of caring for the needs. If we remember Acts chapter 2, 42, we remember chapter 4, I think it's 34, they're talking about caring for the needs of the community. They're selling all that they have to ensure that no one's needs go unmet. And so that's what the church does is it meets and it cares. It meets its own needs. It cares for itself. And as they're doing this, as they are dealing with this, this regular distribution of food and caring for these widows that are there, They realize that they raise this complaint that they're being looked over. And so there has to be some work that is done to care for the widows and the orphans. By the way, we shouldn't look down upon this work as insignificant. We're going to see what the apostles, how they respond to these growing pains. But this is a significant need. The care for widows and orphans is a significant work of the church. Again, these widows, because they were widows, they have no means to care for themselves. And again, more than likely, a large group of this population had relocated from their home countries where their kids were still residing. So their children, their families are back in their Greek-speaking nations, wherever they were. They had come to retire and, and, and ultimately die in the holy city so they could be buried in the holy city. And so they're alone. They're not able to care for themselves. The widows weren't able to provide. They weren't able to work. There were these things that just prevented them. And so the church had this responsibility, this significant responsibility that we still carry today to care for widows and orphans. And so the church has this responsibility, this large number to care for them. And this work of distributing the food was a work of the apostles. It seems as if the apostles had taken on this responsibility until... They couldn't do it all. 
And so because the apostles were, had a responsibility to be teaching and preaching and testifying to the work of Jesus, they had a specific role to play as they oversaw and led the, the entirety of this community. They began to hand off some of this work to other people. More than likely, though, they handed it off to other Jewish-speaking or uh, um, Aramaic-speaking Jews. And because they don't know the widows that are in the Greek-speaking community, they aren't aware of those widows, they begin to get overlooked. And so... The apostles have to deal with this, these growing pains. And so they decide that they are going to call some to serve. In our context, the Aramaic meal trains weren't getting filled. All of the, uh, or excuse me, the, the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking meal trains weren't getting filled. The Aramaic meal trains were all full. But the Greek-speaking meal trains, no one knew who those people were. They didn't know, they weren't aware. And so they raised this to the apostles and say, hey, we also must be cared for. And so the apostles call everyone together, and they're ultimately going to call some to serve. Notice again, as it says at the end, uh, verse 2. And the twelve, these are the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. I mentioned that sometimes we look at this text and we can think of this work of caring for the widows or the orphans as insignificant. We should see the response of the apostles to this complaint, not saying, ah, you're just complaining, go, you know, go take your complaint somewhere else. But they respond to this complaint by calling the whole church together. They called all of the disciples together. They recognize that this is a serious issue. This is a witness of our church that we care for our widows and orphans. It's a testimony to the world around us that Christians care for themselves. And so it's significant that they met this need. And so they call all of the church together. This is the attitude that the apostles have is this is something serious that must be addressed. But they say to themselves, or they say to the disciples, it is not right. And, and a, 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 even a, a more clear translation of that, it is not right, would be it would not honor God for us to stop preaching the word. This is what we are called to do. Again, we have to remember, these 12 are the 12 men who witnessed Jesus' life here on earth spent time with him. And for this specific moment in time and in history, they are the ones who have been called to testify and to witness, to bear witness to what Jesus had done. It would not have been right for them to stop talking about Jesus and doing all of the preaching work and all that they were called to do and overseeing the church and leading the church for them to serve these tables. They weren't saying that the service of the tables was insignificant, again, because they bring the whole church, hey, we gotta deal with this. This is something serious we have to deal with. But our responsibility right now is to testify and to be able to continue testifying to the work of Jesus, so we've got to get some help. We need to enlist some help in order to see this need met. The need was important, but so was the need of preaching the word. As we think about this in our own lives, sometimes you may have experienced this in various churches you've been a part of, but we can't just circle the wagons and say, all we're going to do is now meet the needs of this body. Can you imagine if we just said to our community, wherever it is that you live and all the people around you said, yeah, my church, we just sort of kind of care for ourselves. We're not really interested in all the people out there. So like, sorry, doors are closed. Parking lot is clearly full. We're, we're just going to kind of circle the wagons. We're just going to take care of ourselves. Or maybe in small micro groups, hey, we're just going to kind of worry about ourselves. We're not interested in talking to anybody. We're not interested in dealing with anybody on the outside. We're just, we're here to just meet our own needs and care for ourselves. We can't do that. We can't neglect also, though, 
as we think about our witness and that we must go out and we must preach and teach and proclaim and testify to the work of Jesus, we can't also neglect the work or the needs of this body. So how do we balance this need to say we've got to care for one another well, we've got to encourage one another, we've got to meet the needs of one another where there's hurt and pain and suffering and whatever might be happening in the life where there's meals that are needed, where there's charity that is needed. We have to do that, but then we also must maintain our responsibility to proclaim. These are two things that use two different types of gifts and two different roles. We've got to do both of these things. How can we go about doing that? We can't neglect either of those things. And so there's this tension that is presented here to the apostles about which work should be prioritized. I'm sure it would have been natural for the widows to say to them, to to the apostles, you've got to meet our needs. We have no means to care for ourselves. And for the apostles to have empathetic response, of course, I want to care for you, sister. I want to meet your needs, but I also have to be over here preaching. I can't be in two places at once. It's not possible for me to do that. You know, as elders of this church, we, the men that serve in the role of elder have a responsibility to care for the entirety of the body and to care about the witness of the church and to care about the work that we're doing as we proclaim the gospel to those that are here this morning, but also testifying and doing all the work that we can to ensure that that message reaches outside of these walls. The apostles had a responsibility for the Greek-speaking Jews, for the Aramaic-speaking Jews, eventually the Gentiles who would come in. They had a responsibility for all. In this context, we might not have groups based on language, or on age, or in communities geographically, we may not have all of those same types of things, but what we do have is we have groups of people that gather together. We have a kids' church happening right over there. We have Littles ministry where your babies are being rocked and prayed over and the word of God being spoken over them, even from birth. We have all this work that is doing. We have students that will meet on Wednesday. We have people that are single, we have married people, we have young families, we have widows and widowers. We have all of these people and we don't, we have a responsibility to care for all of them. But if I'm here where I'm standing today on Sunday mornings is where you can often find me, how can I make sure that your baby is being rocked? How can we make sure that your child in fifth grade is being discipled and raised up and pointed to Jesus as you sit here also growing in your faith? How can I ensure that your high school student is growing and beginning to have a faith that when they leave your home, they are prepared to give an answer and to testify to the work of Christ? How do we get all of this done? Should I leave this platform and go over there? I may do that periodically as a way of engaging and connecting and spending time and seeing the work that we're doing. But as elders, as we've said, My responsibility, they have called me to use my gifts here, primarily here on Sunday mornings. And we have called very capable leaders like Miss Shelley and Caleb and Miss Jessica and others that care well. We've called John who gathers our silver servants together. We've we've called these people. We've called Adam and Laura who help build unity and build connections so that fight clubs can be formed, small groups for discipleship to take place. We've called Paul to ensure that there's a friendly face in the parking lot to help you find your way in. We've called these leaders to take these roles and these responsibilities and these specific gifts that they are gifted in to really care and administer that role specifically. And so this is, why have we done all of this? Well, this is what the apostles taught us as they did that here. There was a specific need of ensuring that the Hellenistic widows received their distribution of food and charity that was a responsibility of the church. 
The apostles had a responsibility to care for all of that, but they weren't the ones that were responsible for specifically delivering that. And so they had to keep witnessing and testifying, and they came up with a plan to meet the needs of these widows. They had a responsibility, just as we do, to administer and care for the church, but they couldn't take on every task personally. So they pull these disciples together, all the disciples together. The Hellenists are the ones that have a problem. If anyone in the family has a problem, they say it's, it's a responsibility for all of us to care and figure out how we're going to solve this. And so what does the word teach us? It says that they summoned them, they called them together. It's not right for us to give up preaching the word to go serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. And so they call them to appoint seven men who will go and serve the tables. By the way, that word serve that we see there in the original language is diakono, which is where we get our word deacon from. And so we see here in the New Testament church as it's beginning to grow and grow, and there's this administrative need, they install deacons to care for these specific tasks that they are responsible for. They call seven men. They're told to call seven men. To choose, they're, they're from them amongst themselves, by the way. These seven were of the Hellenistic community. Again, they called them specifically because they would know their own widows. They would know who it was that needed that food, whose houses they need to visit because they were from that community. So they call them to serve this specific job. And what are those qualifications? Again, as I read there, we can see these qualifications that are given. In this text, it's just three things. Choose among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. Choose from you seven men that are of good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. Again, if this is an insignificant task, if this is something that should just kind of be thought of as small and not significant to the body of Christ, why would it matter who they called to serve as waiters to the table? It clearly was significant. That's why the role that they called them to, they said they must be of good repute. They must be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. This is not just something that can be taken lightly. This was the work of the church. The stewardship of the resources of the church were given to these men to care for the body. Good repute. This literally means that they should be above reproach. Essentially what that's teaching us is that the men who were called here had to be people that no one in the body could call a claim against their character and that land on them. Oh, no, he's, he doesn't do that well. No, that you couldn't say anything about them. Doesn't mean they were perfect. Doesn't mean that they were sinless. But it means in terms of their character, they had a good reputation of being men who were above reproach and could not, you couldn't find something against them. You couldn't call them any of the things that would detract from the work that they were doing. Full of the Spirit. They must be men who have demonstrated clear evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, it says. Clear evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And you may ask yourself, well, what is that? How do we know if the Holy Spirit is? Well, again, we can thank Paul for this. We have the fruit of the Spirit given to us in his letter to to the church in Galatia. They must be people who are full of the Spirit, demonstrating the the fruit of the Spirit. Love, patience, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit. This is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And so they call them, say, look for people that have a good reputation, don't, are not looked down upon by the community, but are looked up to by the entire community because of that reputation and because they are full of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is clearly evident in them. And the third is full of wisdom. They had to have been people who had shown wisdom 
and the gift of administration and charity. I say this often, or I joke about this sometimes in our staff. I love babies. I love children. I I really care about them. I am not the best person to spend a long amount of time with your baby, though. That's just, that's an area of gifting that just doesn't, it it, it just isn't my specific gift. I really love when your kids get into kind of that fifth grade, sixth grade, and then teenage years, I love kids that age. I love, that's just where I feel like my gifts really thrive. But when it comes to babies, that's not my best gift. Now, here's what I can say. That's not an excuse for me. There's been times when this church has needed some people to rock a baby, and I'm going to go rock a baby because it's what the church needs. And I'm going to do what the church needs because what do we also say in this church? It's not about me. But I use my gifts here, and I use my gifts sometimes when I teach students. I get to use my gifts hanging out with the fourth and fifth graders. They come over to my house, and we kind of, they, they get to ask me any question on the earth. There's some awesome questions they come up with, by the way. We do that about once a year. I get to spend time with young parents talking about parenting, another area that really I feel like is within my gift. I get to do all of that where I thrive in my gifting so that there's a day when I need to go rock a baby. Hey, I'm going to go rock a baby for a few hours. Doesn't, it's not my primary gift. I don't feel like I'm the best person to do that for your child, but I am willing to do that because that's what the church needs when the church needs that. But we need to use our gifts. And these people were called, they had the wisdom, they were called to have wisdom because they were going to be utilized in the gift of administrating the charity of the church. They had a specific role to play. And so they had to have the wisdom to do that well. And so as we look at people, we look around, as we talk to, you know, about our kids' ministry, we look at Jessica and we say, she has this gift with children. She has the ability to take the gospel that sometimes is complex and can feel a little bit overwhelming to children, and she has the ability to teach that in such a powerful way. I'm so thankful for that. Caleb has the ability to connect with our students in a way that I don't. They just look at me like an old man because I am an old man. And he is not an old man. He's a young man and he's kind of cool and he dresses like them and he kind of, you know, just squirrely like them. And, you know, and, and so that's what he's called to do. And he uses that gift so well. He has a specific gift in that. And that's what he uses well. And he does it well at the same time. Every single one of us that are on staff this week as we invited Pine Cove and hosted Pine Cove City, if you're a guy on this staff, you're outside in the parking lot helping park cars because it was important to the hospitality of this church to welcome so many guests onto our campus that have never navigated that parking lot and make sure that they had as peaceful and as a joyful an experience as possible. Not what we always love to do. Some of you are amazing out there. You can do that wand like, I mean, it's, it, you're a Jedi with the parking <laughs> wand, all right? So these are all the things that they were called to do. And so they use these tests as they look at them. They say, call these men. And of course, they called the seven men that are listed there. We see Stephen mentioned for the first time. By the way, we're going to hear all about Stephen next time. And it's going to be so clear as we look next week at Stephen's life and his, his preaching gift even, um, that he was a man full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And so they call Stephen And Philip, we're going to see Philip later in the book of Acts. We're going to see his story as he baptizes the first non-Semite person in the Bible. All right, we're going to see all sorts of cool things of these people. We don't don't hear much more about Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, but we know that they are called to do this work and they did that work well. How do we know what happened? Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
How do we know that God affirmed this move? God blessed this work, this task? Again, the apostles decided that they were going to call these seven. They needed to deal with the administration of these gifts, of the charity. They call these seven men. How do we know that that was the right thing? Because God affirmed that as he blessed the church, as he, they continued to see conversions take place. Even, by the way, amongst the priests. If you weren't with us last week, the last time we heard the priests mentioned, referenced, they were threatening to kill Peter and all these apostles. They were going to kill them. And now we see some of those priests coming to faith in Christ because of the work of the church. God blessed the work of the church. God affirmed what they had done. If he was displeased with what the apostles had done, we can be sure there's more than likely, he's not, we're not gonna see this continual growth to happen. These were people that had been threatening to kill the apostles and now they're worshiping beside them. What an amazing work of God. It's so clear that God was moving in the church. We must keep our eyes, friends, on the work that God has called us to do of making disciples. And as a church family, as elders of this church, we've strived to put forth a structure that allows us to effectively do that. As we look, we see the structure that we put in place from fight clubs to one-on-one to 201 to all these. We're not perfect, by the way. We don't claim to be the perfect church, any of those things. I'm not, definitely not the perfect preacher. As we put all of these different structures in place that seem somewhat administrative and maybe don't seem to, maybe they don't always make sense. But what we're striving to do is have a structure that allows us to effectively make disciples. And one of the ways that we just say, thank you, God, it seems like you've protected us, guarded us, helped us along the path, led us by the power of your spirit is that we are seeing him do great and mighty things. We aren't doing the work. He is doing great and mighty things through us. And so we say, seems like this structure is working. Seems like the church is in some ways thriving. Now, there's areas as we grow, guess what? We're going to continue to experience growing pains. Even right now, I can tell you, there's things that as elders, we're trying to dialogue through and think through and pray through and asking for God's help. Like, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to manage that? You saw some steps being put down here. We're trying to think about how can we add parking to make this place more hospitable. We're dealing with these growing pains, all of those things that we do so that we can continue to effectively make disciples because that's what we're called to do and ask God to bless that work. So let's keep our eye on the prize. Keep our eye on Jesus. Keep proclaiming Jesus and find our place, find your role where you are called to serve. And don't look at that as something as menial or as, oh, that's not as important. That's not as, as significant to whatever it is. We're all called to be members of the body of Christ. And every single part of this body is important and is vital, friends. We couldn't do the work without all of the gifts being used. And so we invite you, I ask you, serve, find that place. We're going to have, by the way, our summit I know summertime, there's a lot of vacations, a lot of moving around, a lot of traveling. But come back August 19th, August 19th, that weekend of August 19th, I want you to circle that in your calendar. I want you to bar yourself from any vacation that weekend. I want you to be here that weekend. That's going to be a place where you're going to be able to find your place to serve. If you haven't figured that out yet, if you're not sure where that is, or maybe you're just deciding, hey, I want to be a part of this church. And that, that weekend, there will be a whole process for you to kind of engage with us and say, I want to be a part of this church. I want to, I want to be involved in the ministry of this church. And we'll invite you to do that. And so don't miss August 19th. That's a great step for you to take. Just kind of put on your calendar for a couple months out. So let's keep going. Let's keep seeing God build his church. Let's do our part. 
As we think about what Christ has done, we can't help but give thanks to God for what he has done in our midst. So let's stand, let's worship Jesus one last time through song. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh you say.